And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. Welcome to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine. And our guest this week is Matt Brass. He lives in uh, beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee. He's a very creative guy. He's uh, I'm just going to call you a graphic designer. I know that's not really the business you're in. I call it destination art because it doesn't really have a name. So that's what I call it. When we're done, you got to give us your business website too, so people can go see the work you do because it's it's very impressive. But Matt's also a photographer, street photographer, uh, very talented. Matt, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. I enjoy the magazine and I appreciate what you're doing. Matt started out life studying theology and he was uh, he was a teacher and a uh, chaplain at one time, but he moved into more creative fields. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your journey in life and how you got into street photography? Yeah, well, you know, my my photography, my mother is an artist. And when I was a kid, uh, she would shoot slides um, for for painting reference. And so I would grab the little Nikon and I would shoot slides, you know, 10, 15 years old. And I enjoyed that. Um, but I had kind of a purpose in it. And, uh, you know, she got it developed and she used them and um so I didn't, I didn't, I kind of left it, but when I was in, in college, I took a, a, a photography class with, and film, obviously, uh, back in the 1900s. Um, but um, I really enjoyed uh, taking that class because I could develop my own film. It, it was right there. And, um, I, you know, the dark room, uh, the, the, the chemicals, uh, the, you know, all that. I enjoyed that hands-on feel. And then somewhat of a sense of immediacy, you know, if I shot something, I could actually go that night and, and check it out. Um, after college, I don't know what it was, the beginning of the digital age uh, just didn't appeal to me. Um, it, it took me a while to kind of get back into photography. I was probably 40 years old. And and, and humbly enough, what kind of got me back into photography was when cameras became bluetooth to your phone and i bought a fuji film camera and um that was just that made it more alive to me that i could shoot something you know carefully craft a photo with a real camera but still have that connectivity so as you can see i'm you know i struggle a little bit with instant gratification but um that was kind of what got me back into it and now of course i'm putting in you know a, a lot more time into it but that was what kind of pulled me in was the uh, the ability to go mobile to have it to capture a moment and then to have shared it with friends and family within maybe a few minutes after shooting it with a real camera because i love a real camera I, i've never really enjoyed phone photography that much it just doesn't seem the same to me so as far as street photography um i knew i wanted to get into street photography when i was visiting san francisco and they had a um Deanne Arbus show and um I don't know if she would technically be considered street a street photographer but I loved what she was doing and it really pushed me towards that documentary which was something we kind of talked about online you know where's the line between documentary photography and street photography but um I like landscapes I like all that stuff but there's just something about capturing real people um and, and kind of freezing in time these real moments. It just feels real. It feels important to me. Uh, and so that's what I enjoy doing. You know, you said your your mother was an artist. Yeah, I think you, mm -hmm. you also once said your father was an artist too, right? Yeah, they met in art class, actually. Yeah. Wow. He's a painter. Wow. That's funny. Yeah, my mother yeah. was was a painter as well. And okay. she got into photography later in life for really the same purpose to take photographs of things that she was going to paint. And mm -hmm. she actually, she actually had a little business painting people's houses and that's how she got started in photography as well. But I think with, with the creative side, I think it must've skipped, skipped my generation and went to my kids. But in your case, you inherited it directly. Well, you know, I, I've had people tell me, you know, you're, you're talented. And I say, not really normal people just go to bed at night. 
Um, <laughs> I remember asking my mom. We actually made a little film on my mom, you know, just to, and I and and I was really pressing her. I says, "Well, why do you do this?" And she says, "I have to. Yeah, it's a problem, and I have to solve it. And as soon as I think of it, I can't rest until I've solved it." This needs to be, I need to paint this. I need to solve it. And um, and I guess that's in me. And I do enjoy creative very much, but um, it's a need as much as it is a pleasure to, to do creative for me. That makes sense. Yeah, it is. It's just something you have to do. So you do street photography. You live in a fairly small town. Ten blocks, maybe. About ten blocks, yeah. That's about how big our downtown is. So, what do you do? Where, where do you where do you find your subject? Do you go to the same places all the time? Well, you know, I I do like we do do some traveling, and so if if we ever go somewhere, like I've been to Chicago twice in the last year, and I'm always that I I you know I grab whatever time I can get. Um, we went up to Cincinnati last weekend for my birthday, and Cincinnati is a fantastic in my opinion, fantastic street photography destination. Uh, great architecture, great people. But, um, you know, there's a there's actually a group of photographers who meets probably once or twice a month at dawn on Sunday and walks around downtown Knoxville. So, you know, um, I don't I don't know that I have this ability, but but my feeling is, you know, you could probably shoot a single block for a year if you if you um you know it's kind of like um this is a strange analogy but when i first started playing chess I, I couldn't see beyond my next move and as i played for a while you begin to see five or six moves ahead you didn't actually see it and at first you just can't see it um but the more you play it the more you see and i was never any good at chess I, I, that's that's in the past but the idea of um you know in, in my mind 10 blocks of of good light and good buildings is probably a lifetime worth of work. If, if I had enough creativity, you know, I don't know that I do, but it's probably there. Um, you know, I, you may have seen, I, I put that saw lighter quote on, on my um, project I was working on. What did he say? I take photographs close to home because mysterious things happen in familiar places. Not I said my neighborhood, but um, I love that quote mysterious things happen in familiar places and just kind of looking you know you can it's interesting i've noticed once you can go somewhere you've been a thousand times and if you just you can make yourself look in a corner and see something you never saw before there's always something you haven't seen there's always an angle and then of course a city like knoxville we have a lot of tourism so you got the people um all that said i love to get out i love to go to bigger cities I love Chicago. Um, I, I've shot in New York a few times. I, I probably almost prefer Chicago, but um, yeah, I, I love to get out. I don't want to spend my whole life shooting in Knoxville, but anyway. <laughs> You're there. You might as well make use of it. Yeah, I, I love Chicago too. Um, great place to shoot, especially around the Jelly Bean. I could hang around there all day and just photograph the way people react to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chicago gives you that ability of having that dense, you know, elevated city to that density, but also the ability to step back from it. New York, you have a hard time getting away from it. You're always kind of, unless you're in the middle of Central Park, you're, you're always kind of in the middle of it. But Chicago, you can be in the middle of it, or you can get out from it, or you can walk out on the pier and look. I mean, there's just so many angles that you can grab in, in Chicago. And yeah, that's probably my favorite place I've shot um i want to spend some time in san francisco but that's a a bit more of a jump from home you know i am not um i made a decision and i bought this leica you got the q2 there and a friend of mine loaned me one and he and he was about to hand it to me and he says, you may not want to try this. It might be a slippery slope. And um, he was right. I shot it for a week and 
I, I had no intention of spending that kind of money. Oh, that's what you got too. There you go. Was oh, that the monochrome? Yeah. Nice. Don't don't try it. That's what that's what he told me. If you shoe monochrome, yeah, there. I have the original Q, and then I, I got this a little while ago, and uh, I almost sold it, but then I'm not going to now. No, no. We actually have in our little photo group that meets where it's crazy. One of the guys who comes is a, a like a rep. Um, yeah, so he always has like the latest thing to show people. Um, I don't know what his actual title is, but he does some some online support or something like that. Um, but yeah, so he's gotten uh, probably half the group now is, has Leicas, which is it's crazy because it is a lot of money. But you know, the way I think of it, you know, my brother-in-law buys um, motorcycles. I mean, my hobby is cheap compared to what a lot of people are, you know, boats and jet skis and all that stuff. This is all I do, you know. I have this and a bicycle, so yeah, me it's too. Pretty cheap. <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a any cameras safer than a motorcycle? Yeah, yeah. But I'll have to. I'll have to say. Um, I'll hand it to him. Um, I did not think that Leica could be that much of a better shooting experience for me. And I love Fujifilm. I think Fujifilm was great. Well, me too. I had the X one hundred V. Me um, too. <laughs> But um, that, I mean, it's 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 changed the way I shoot. It really has. Yeah, me too. It's it's simple. Mm -hmm. It's just very simple and basic, but also very powerful. And I love the lens. You know, I, I I'm tempted to go back to my Fujifilm and see if I could get it out of the Fujifilm, but. And, and with a Leica, I've been able to push for richer color yeah. without feeling garish. Mm -hmm. Like in the past, when I would try to push the color, it felt garish. And now with the, 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 there's something about the, the image I'm getting out of the Q2 that it feels richer. I can yeah. I can push harder on the color than I could in the Fujifilm. I would get... um. Well, garish is not the not the best word. Um, overprocessed. Yeah, overprocessed in design. We would say it looks too hot. Okay, um, but but I love the richness and depth of color. Anyway, not to ramble on about that. No, no, I um, no. I was glad to see that. I didn't didn't realize it. And uh, you know, and this isn't the Leica show or a Fuji show or anything. But you know. People want to know what you use. Might as well talk about it. Well, yeah, and, and Fujifilm, you know, if, if people are trying to get into it, I'd still recommend. You know, I, I took um Joel Meyerwitz uh, master class mm -hmm. uh, online, um, and he said something that is is nothing new. You've heard it a hundred times, but I'm sure. But it, it, there really is a value to just shooting one lens. It's making yeah. yourself shoot one lens. Yep, I think it's um. I've heard people try to articulate it and when they try to explain it, I don't, I think it's hard to articulate it, but when you do it, um, I think you begin to understand it. Um, his explanation was you begin to see in that focal length. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but to me having the one, I just, um, when I have a zoom or multiple lenses, I'm always fiddling. I'm not posing. Yeah, I um, I mean, I shot not exclusively, but probably eighty percent of the time with with the X one hundred. I mean, going back to the beginning of the X one hundred series up to the X one hundred V. Now, I was shooting thirty five millimeter equivalent. So since I've been doing shooting with the Q, of course, it's twenty eight. I've gotten used to the twenty eight. Now, when I pick up the Fuji, it feels too long. Well, and with that twenty-eight, with that forty-seven megapixel, you can um, you can still get your thirty-five if you want it pretty easily. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes, you have a ton to work with. The downside is those files are humongous. Do you keep all? Do you have everything that you do? You, do you archive everything you shoot, or do you discard a lot of it? I keep a lot, and I probably shouldn't. You know, even these 
even these uh, raw files. Uh, I mean, each one's well with, with the with the monochrome, they're like eighty megabytes, mm -hmm. and uh, much less, you know, on the original Q. But uh, of course, Fuji's has come out with a forty megapixel sensor, so they're they're going to be huge as well. So that's big. Yeah. That adds up. So I don't delete enough. You know, some people say I never get rid of anything. Others say I trash everything that doesn't make the cut. What about you? Well, you know, I'm I'm evolving. I'm taking my photography much more serious during the last year. I have a um, I keep a JPEG of everything I shoot. Um, mm -hmm. These raw files and the color are are almost ninety megs. Um, so I'm not. I haven't decided. I've been keeping some of them, but um, that's just, you know, that's investing in a lot of hard drive. And, and to me, if I have a good JPEG at 47 megapixel, but I like the exposure, that's that's probably where I'm going to sit. I'm, I'm probably not going to archive all my. But one thing that I do, um, I, I don't know how many pictures I shoot a week. I shoot all the time. Yeah. You know, my friends who are, you know, are good photographers, I probably shoot three or four times as much as anybody in my photo group easily. Mm -hmm. um, I just always have the camera with me. And, um, you know, if I want to blow off some steam, I'll just go walk around for 10 minutes and there's, there's 30 pictures, you know? Yeah. Same here. Um, I've been shooting just the last few weeks, just strictly JPEG on the monochrome. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the uh, the raw files are really nice. They're very malleable, and especially, you know, the shadow detail. You can bring a lot of detail out of the shadows. But the JPEGs look damn good. And like I said in the last show, talking to Matt Jerems, the JPEGs look like a clean triax. So I just, I think I boost the contrast by one, and that's all I do. And I've been real happy with them. And it saves a lot of space on my hard drive. A lot of them I'll, I'll use right out of the camera. The the raw files right out of the camera are are very gray looking, very flat, mm -hmm. and it you know it's supposed to be. I don't know if you've looked at them before, and if you look at them right out of the camera, you think, oh, you know, why why are people spending all this money for these things? But once you start to bump the contrast, drop the highlights a bit, and open the shadows, it it changes it dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a balance to me from a workflow standpoint. If you get a workflow that's so finicky that you actually start doing less work, I think over time you produce, you're less likely to produce good work. Uh, I mean, if you get too high volume, it's going to go the other way, but you got to find a balance of, um, you know, having 10 good JPEGs, it's probably better than having three good raw files. If if you know, it just depends on how it. That sounds kind of garbled the way I said that, but you know, it's just finding that balance of not getting, you know, like like the guys who shoot film. Um, have you watched the documentary Everybody Street? Uh, one of the guys in there talking. He doesn't ever do anything. He shoots film and he gets it developed, and that's it. And you know, um. There's something to be said for that. You know, get the camera set like you want and shoot it, and and that's what you got. And you, you can hear some of these photographers that the, even the idea of of adjusting anything in the photograph is um is um you know blasphemy. You shouldn't you know it's, yeah I was gonna say you know that. distortion. It's ruining photography. Uh, and I don't I don't believe that, but um I, I get the idea of you know he he just shoots film and. You know, he doesn't have near the resolution we have, and and um, it is what it is. You know, of course, I forget which which guy that was. That might not have been from that film. That might have been another thing I was watching. That was the guy who um who did the hardcore street photography thing group on Flickr years ago. I don't know if he was in the documentary or not. I can't think of his name. Anyway, um. Hmm. Yeah, well, say that say that to Ansel Adams. Look what he did to his negatives. Yeah, yeah. So a raw file is really no different. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it, it it needs to be worked a little bit. Mm -hmm. You don't want to spend all day on it, 
but yeah, some people do. You've got a couple projects you're working on now. Um, maybe you started thinking about it after we were exchanged some emails, but to, but the first one is Shadowed, which looks really cool. And we'll be publishing part of that in the magazine. Tell us a little bit about that and what inspired it. Well, you know what inspired it was actually a negative thing. And I won't, I don't even remember the guy's name, but I was watching a, a, a street photographer and um, I'm sure he's a talented guy, but he was, he was, he was, when I was watching him, all he was doing, like to, to like in this YouTube video, if he captured a person doing something on the street, boom, that was a photo. And um, I realized that's kind of what I had fallen into is it was mm -hmm. just about the capture. Like sometimes in wildlife photography, you know, if you get the, the bird in focus, it's a good photo. But is it a good photo? It's not a particularly interesting photo, but the, it, it, it can become just about the capture and not about the art. And I think street photography, I think I was falling into the idea of, oh, that's an interesting looking woman. Can I get her in focus? Can I get her when she's getting off the bus? Boom, boom, boom. And so I was I was falling into the idea that if I got a good photo of an interesting person in action, then that was a good street photo. And it wasn't. It was boring. And so I tried to figure out what I could do, um, you know, to bring some art back into what I was doing. And and I and I reviewed some of my stuff. And some of the stuff I liked was just like when I had a, a figure emerging from or, or falling into or um where the shadow really played a dramatic role you know there's a lot mm -hmm. of those that have a shadow but where the shadow was really prominent where maybe the shadow was more interesting than the subject itself yeah um so i just said i'm going to shoot shadows for three months um and that was about it was actually the same time i got the leica and um so that collection it has probably five or ten photos i'd already taken i kind of went back and curated some old stuff but I was just I just shot shadows for like um three months. I've been shooting them. And um right in the middle of that, I got this book, uh, The Unseen Saw Lighter, which yeah has has for me been by far I've bought a bunch of books. It's been a ridiculous amount of books, although I think it's worth it, but by far the most influential um photographic work i've seen his ability to truly create art out of the ordinary you know some street photographers are brilliant but they're like um like bruce gilden he's creating that scene he's using his body and his energy and his flash and he's and and and, and these images he gets are fantastic but it's fantastic circumstance he's created saul lighter is just finding these things that are completely otherwise mundane and using and 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 he'll use like a um a, a signpost and just block someone's face out. And I would have thought, oh no, you didn't get their face, but that's what's that was the yeah. You know, he would obscure things and he would cut things off and he would have a whole whole frames where like 80% of the frame was the blurred top of a car, but there's one person and and it's just beautiful work. And it was really kind of the opposite. I had been trying to, oh, there's a something in the way of this person. Let me make sure I don't get that in the way of the person. Um, but him really, he really embraces those, um, which to me is really true street photography because that is the experience. You're never, when you're on the street, there's always something in your way. There's always something to step around or look over or look around. So that's mm, kind of yes. where I ended up was just to try to create a body of street photography that had an underlying concept. And um, so I started out with the shadow and then I saw his use of obstruction so I tried to use the shadow more. I have one photo in there where there's a guy, he's perfectly lit, except the shadow comes just straight across his face. Um, and, and, you know, looking for those types of things that really kind of are disruptive. I know when I was in writing and in creative, you're always looking for the disruptive concept. That's what's interesting. And my photography mm -hmm. had fallen into um, seeking clarity, but clarity is not interesting. Disruption disruptions interesting. I uh, heard one guy on a podcast once say, 
I had some people look at my photographs and they told me that I'm very accurate. And he said, <laughs> that's probably the worst insult I've ever had. <laughs> um, it's funny you bring mentioned the Soul Lighter book. I'm reading a book I just learned about um, listening to the Candid Frame podcast uh, with Barry Next Perella. He interviewed David Ulrich, who's a landscape photographer. He happens to be, he lives in Hawaii, he happens to be from Cleveland. I've got to find him because I lived, spent most of my life in Cleveland. And uh, so I've got to find this guy. But he wrote a book called The Mindful Photographer. Hmm. The subtitle is Awaken the World with a Camera. But it's not a book you can just like sit down and just read in one one sitting. You know, each chapter has something to learn from to go out and use. And and the and the first section is about uh, resonance. You know, photograph what resonates with you. And it takes a while to to get that. And it, but that sounds like that's what you're doing with the shadows. And uh, so I went out and I I've, I've been practicing that. And instead of looking for things that might make a good picture just like you're talking about photographing the lady on the street you want to get her in focus and whatever um and there really is something to, to that I, i'm taking fewer photos but there are things that are much more interesting to me instead of trying to make a situation and then the next chapter i'm only on the second one and it's exactly what you were talking about he said avoid the pictorial Instead of trying just to make a beautiful picture, a photograph of a woman who looks good on the street, she's in focus, you know, maybe, I don't know, like you say, getting out of a car or whatever. To what you're talking about, what, what Saul Leiter does, is you're finding things that capture your attention that are mm -hmm. more artistic in a way that comes from you. Yeah, yeah. This guy is such a good writer. Highly recommend that book. You know, my, it was a while ago. My son, I have a, I have several kids, but but one of my sons was shooting with me, and when there was a a beautiful. We were actually in Colorado. It was a beautiful sunset, but there was a chain mm -hmm. link fence between us, and the sunset that we wanted. So I like figured out a way to shoot over the chain link fence, and he shot the chain link fence. Much more interesting photo than mine. Uh huh. Um, so I've, I've really learned that I had this habit of, of kind of, um, getting so focused on the thing that's the number one in the hierarchy that I, that I, that I delete the secondary things and I lose the movement, you know, in design, you're always trying to create that movement from, from the one, the two to the three, you know, boom, boom, boom. And in photography, I had kind of fallen into a rut of focusing on the one and then, and, and losing the, the two and the three. Yeah. You get blinders, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I do the same thing. Same thing. Yeah, if you're looking at the sunset, turn around. Because that beautiful soft light shining on something behind you. You know, let me ask you a question. What Speaking about, you know, the, the imperfections and perceived imperfections making something interesting. Like, um, do you do you always level the horizon and post? Or do you leave it skewed if it's interesting? Yes. Yes. I, I I level it a lot. Probably most of my shots are not straight. Um, but I we were up on the Blue Ridge Parkway just last week. And uh I turned around and took a quick photo of my wife with the you know nice background. And when I pulled it into Lightroom, I noticed it was skewed. And I said, I'm leaving it like that. That's that's much more interesting. It was tilted, I don't know, maybe it was like 15 degrees to the yeah. left, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I quit trying to make things perfect. Yeah, I've, I've started to stop doing that because I feel like I've ruined pictures. Like, well, that was interesting. And then you straighten it. Now it's not yeah. interesting. Uh, a friend of mine just took one of these classes with a pretty well-known photographer. And... One of the things the photographer said is he always shoots, um, uh, there's probably a term for it, but he always shoots parallel to, to the, the ground. He never lifts or lowers his camera. That way, nothing's distorted. And that kind of bothered me. I mean, 
That distortion can be interesting, you know. It can be. Yeah. I mean, life's not perfect. We're not perfect. So I try to make everything perfect. Sure. Yeah. Nothing against camera clubs because they are <laughs> great educational resources. And it seems like, you know, they focus on trying to make beautiful pictures, which is great. The kind we'll put on our walls. Who wants to put my photos on their wall? Nobody, mm -hmm. including my wife. That's my, that's why <laughs> any of my photos are in here. No, I mean, it's a very good thing, but like I said, life's not perfect. And yeah. And, uh, you know, those little imperfections, I think, could be a much more interesting at times. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the photography community is kind of an interesting. Um, when you get people who are interested in photography, you can have at times two distinct groups, one who are really drawn to the technology side of it. So they're looking for the precision and the depth of field and the and all those things. And then on the other side, you have the artist. Um, I mean, some of those beautiful photos in the world that I've seen, they don't have a focus, you know, much less high resolution, you know, and, and so it's kind of it can be a clash of worlds depending on who who shows up to that group um but um because you know the technology is actually quite interesting but that's not art yeah our camera club some of these, these people in it are just wizards with lightroom and photoshop mm -hmm. i've learned so much from them you know because i use i just use what i need to mm -hmm. get the job done but I've i've learned some interesting techniques that have sped up my workflow without trying to make them perfect yeah yeah you um speaking of perfect do you have a camera that has one hell of a lens on it yeah do you feel like because you've got that you've everything's got to be super sharp especially when you're shooting at 1.7 which i think is magical on on that device you know i mean would you rather sometimes have a like a cheap lens on a on a fuji <laughs> that has more imperfection um i mean that's a really good question i've had this camera for probably three or four months now and i've i've, I've toyed with picking up my fuji you, you know probably my favorite setup is my x pro 2 which is all i have left now with that original 35 14 i've got that too that's a great lens yeah and i've thought about going out and just seeing what i could do with it um but, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I think at some point, yeah, I, I'm still kind of breaking into Leica. But I think at some point, probably. friend of mine who actually got me into Leica, he liked having some of the vintage lenses that weren't quite mm -hmm. as perfect. Mm -hmm. And he had several of them for different different purposes. I don't know. I like the one that's on here. I shot some jazz musicians last week and in a place with really nice light uh it was very even light you know it wasn't like we had spotlights on them or anything they, they were rehearsing it in this uh, community center and uh i thought wow this is just so sharp you know especially i mean i just nailed their eyes but i thought gee is that a little too perfect yeah i don't know yeah i don't know yeah. So anyway, while we were talking about your shadowed project, I, I'm glad you you mentioned how you know you got into that because of the Soul Lighter book, and uh, and then uh, you had another one you were talking about. I guess it was basically triggered by the incident with George Floyd. Yeah. Which I found very interesting. Yeah, I had um, I I had just like I say, I take photos all the time and. Um, that collection starts out with a photo that was, I was actually on a Zoom call with someone else. There was just this commotion. I went out and there was that protest happening right in my own front yard, literally. But I had taken photos of, um, I, I think probably in that, that collection that I share with you, which is on my website. Um, I think, um, probably four, five, six locations on different times that I'd taken photos. 
but I hadn't done anything with it. And I picked up Jill Friedman's book. I, I bought it. I found it really cheap on um, a books. A books has some great deals on old photo books. I don't know if you ever go there. Um, no. Online Abe Abe books. Um, their search isn't. I, I usually find the books through Google. Um, it's better, you know, but man, I think I paid like 13 bucks for that. But anyway, she did a, a photo book on um, Resurrection City, which I never even heard of. But apparently when MLK was shot, a, a group of um, mostly African-Americans um, built this makeshift city in Washington, D.C. and lived there for a while as a protest or something. And I was just thinking to myself how important it was that she got these photos. You know, there's no way of describing what she captured with an image. And I thought, you know, I've got that stuff there. And I just got up from looking at that book and, and put it together, um, you know, published it online. And, you know, I, I have a hard copy myself. I don't know if I'll do anything else with it, but it's out there now. You know, it's my account. It's not comprehensive, but it was an important event. And I was just kind of sitting on it. So it's, you know, for the record, my, my, my stuff's out there, you know, if people want to look at it. I try to not um, comment. Because I obviously have opinions, mm -hmm. but um, you know, just capture the images and let people, you know, maybe maybe thirty years from now somebody will look at that and 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 understand something they didn't understand before. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's almost two years ago now. Um, I don't know if you know Chris Suspect. He's a street photographer in D.C. And when the uh, January 6th insurrection oh, thing wow. happened, he went out. That guy, that guy will do anything. And he was right in the middle of it, shooting the whole thing. I mean, right up to the fence where they broke in. And, but, you know, he said, this is happening. I, you know, I need to document it. Although, I mean, it was documented probably more than anything we've seen in recent memory, but... He has his take on it, and it's very, very interesting. Very, very well done. Did he go in? No, no, no. No. Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't go that far. But, sure. But, uh, yeah, he was, you know, right there. Uh, it, it, it's a very interesting story. I did a podcast with him uh, talking about it. You might, might want to listen to it. I, I'll, put, I'll put a link to it in the show notes if anybody wants to go back and yeah. listen to it. It's a very interesting story. That is interesting. Um, yeah, I guess I I do want one thing I want to talk about is something you you said um, I think before we scheduled this is about the line between documentary photography mm -hmm. and street photography. To you, is there a line? And if so, where is it? <laughs> well, you know, I've I've thought about that question a lot. Um, yeah, and and I guess the the first question is well, what is street photography? You know, and, <laughs> and not to ask you over the office, but I, I was just, I kind of, you know, because I knew you were, we were going to talk about that. I just kind of went through the list of photographers on that um documentary, Everybody's Street. And boy, that's uh, their interpretation of street photography. Um, Jill Friedman, to me, is is a documentary photographer. You know, she, she's very intentional. But she's in there. And, and to me, it does feel like street photography as well. I read some definition that said that um, with street photography, um, the location is the subject. And with documentary photography, the event is the subject. And I, I felt like that was really not making a lot of sense. Like, you know, it's like somebody's trying to draw a line. To me, to answer your question, no, I don't think there is a clear line. I think when you call it street photography, um, you're you have more of a license to um, to me. Maybe the difference would be um, street photography is more editorial, and documentary photography is more news. Like on a news channel, you have you have news. That's the documentary photography. Then you have the editorial, which is the news, 
but it's presenting an angle. So to me, if I was going to try to create a line, I don't know if there is a clear one, um, that would be it, if that makes sense. Um, but, you know, all street, to me, I don't have any interest in street photography that's staged. That's that's not interesting at all. It all has to be somewhat, it, it has to be documentary to some, to some extent. Um, but to me, street photography has more of a license to not tell you the whole picture, but to tell people what you want them to see. Whereas if you're saying I'm a documentary photographer and you go to a, um, a rally, you're not just showing the photos that support maybe your, your th thinking. You're showing everything that you see. So More like um, a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would get to me, if you want to call it documentary, you need to kind of follow follow the rules of journalism. If you want to call it street, this is what I think, you know, and I'm just going to show you the pictures that make you feel um, sympathetic to George Floyd. I'm not going to show you the, the the pictures that make you feel sympathetic to the police. You know, that's not documentary. That's editorial. I never heard of I never thought of it that way, but that makes sense. Okay. Well good. Because I didn't know if it did, but <laughs> I've often heard the definition of street photography is that it's candid in an urban environment and in a public place. But in my personal opinion, and that's all it is, is we need to add a caveat as not always. For example, Harvey Stein is a very well-known street photographer. He also does many street portraits with the cooperation of his subjects. So those are not candid, but they are definitely street photographs. Or another example, a gentleman by the name of Hal Paget does a lot of his street photography on the beach of Jacksonville, Florida. It's candid, it's in a public place, but it's not really an urban environment. But you see any of his photos, you know they're street photos. Again, that's just my opinion. Others may differ. I was just looking at somebody who he spent a whole um, section of his career on beach photography. I think Gildan Gildan started out at Coney Island. Yeah, he was. He did a ton of a ton of beach photography. Um, you know, what's your um? Do you have a um? A thought to me, one of the, the bigger points of debate is, is consent of the subject. And then secondly, knowledge of the subject. Uh, like I heard one photographer, and I don't remember this guy's name, but like he would take a photo that he knew the person didn't want them to take the photo, but he would feel unethical taking the photo if they weren't aware of it. Like to him, he had to be obvious because sometimes I'll do I'll take photos that people don't know I'm taking and I'm intentionally concealing the fact that I'm taking the photo. Um, so everyone has their own kind of code of ethics. What's your thought on that? I mean, I certainly take candid photos on the street, um, but I take a lot where I do, you know, where I have interacted with them. Mm -hmm. um, I know like Harvey Stein. He's a street photographer. Most of what he does, he's engaged with the people. And he's, you know, had chats with them. I think you can ethically photograph people candidly on the street, at least in the United States. I mean, if you're out in public, then you have no expectation of mm -hmm. for privacy. Now, I, I sticking a camera in somebody's window, I think is highly unethical. And, and illegal, because they do have the expectation of privacy. That's right. It's their house. Leave them alone. Private property. Mm -hmm. What about you? Oh, I go back. You know, I, I think about it quite a bit. You know, I take pictures that people don't know I'm taking. Um, I do try to follow the rule of not exploiting, not humiliating, like not taking something that makes someone look exactly. bad. Yeah, um, you have to be respectful. Not taking, like... Like, like I'll, I'll sometimes take a photo of a homeless person, but I never want to take a photo that's because they're homeless. That's like exploiting yeah. what they're suffering. Like if they're, they're walking and it's interesting and they're just, I'm taking a photo of like a human being, but I try not to take a photo of someone who's suffering 
um, or, or struggling. I, this is the tough one for me is I've gotten some shots of kids. I really like, but I try to avoid taking shots of kids. Sure. But you have a couple, um, you know, so I, you know, I, it's interesting. I heard a, I won't mention this guy's name because this, because I really disagree with him, but he wants, he's a prominent commentator in the photography world. You know, his name, uh, he wants it to be made illegal to take a photo of somebody without permission. You know, he thinks it should be illegal, which which is interesting. Um, yeah. How do you enforce that? You know, apparently it's illegal in Germany. Well, that, that that's funny you mentioned that because I, on the last show, uh, talking to Matt Jerems, he was in Spain and he said, uh, he was in Barcelona and he said that apparently it's illegal to photograph strangers without their permission in spain and i didn't even i was there just I didn't know a couple that. months ago and, and yeah and i didn't know that either yeah germany i've heard that about germany france i've heard heard that as well so not unusual in europe yeah well and i i have a someone i met on instagram i've never spoken with them but, but she she's a german street photographer and i asked her about it and she says people just kind of do it you know it's not really enforced um but but she she shoots candidates of people um all the time in germany but um I, you know i think you got to be respectful i don't I, I really to me you don't exploit people um and i actually like i i think i share with you that zine i was working on half the people in there i've had conversations with half i hadn't you know it's just kind of a to me it's a mix you know yeah yeah i agree but like you said you you have to be respectful of your subject. Like there was a website, I don't know if it's still around, called the People of Walmart. Oh yeah. And then folks would that. walk around Walmart with with their phone and photograph people who are obese or mm -hmm. you know, if they're bending over and you can see their butt crack or something, you know, things that were just yeah, not nice. You yeah. know, it, it, it's not gonna make their life any better. Yeah. Very disrespectful, I think. And not adding value um, to me, to me, ultimately, yes. photography adds value, you know, um, I just bought that book by Gordon Parks. Um, I don't know. It, it's probably been a few years, but he shot a segregated, a segregated, um, he shot a family in Alabama or Mississippi during segregation for life magazine and they lost all the negatives after they published it. Well, they just found them. And he's this, so wow. it's this whole book. And, you know, a lot of, so much of what we see from that time period is conflict, but this was just daily life and it's beautifully shot and it's shot in color. Um, and, you know, I've looked at that book. Um, a lot of my family's black. Um, my oldest son who's black looked at it. And it's just like, seeing it for the first time you've read about it but it's just this incredibly valuable thing that this guy captured and there's no there's no amount of words that can ever communicate what some of those photos communicate and there's all kinds of stuff like out there like that that's just invaluable um invaluable to understanding who we are as human beings well do you remember the name of the book yeah um i think it's just gordon parts a segregation story give me 10 seconds i'll grab it just segregation story segregation story okay yeah they ran probably 20 photos in life magazine but this is this is the whole i mean it's just it's packed and and daily life it's not like you know you're always seeing it's like you know they're getting hit with the fire hose or something but this is just how they live their lives you know, with, with dignity and, and what they did, there's, there's very little, uh, I don't think there's any conflict in the book. So it just kind of gives you that side of the life that, that wasn't really recorded very, very well. I'm going to look that book up. Um, I'm trying to build a library of photo books. Yeah. I showed it to my, um, I have been too. I've spent way too much money, but um, I showed it to my father-in-law, you know, and, and he's a very, kind and and guy who tries to do the right thing but you know he's mm -hmm. he's almost 80 i just saw him sitting here looking at it you know he lived through that you know and he never sure. 
he never seen it's just very watching people experience it's kind of been a a powerful thing for me because it's yeah it's a it's a window so he lived through the period of separate bathrooms and drinking fountains and all that stuff yeah he was up north but you know still no. the north has its own history oh yeah well on that note our time's almost up so before we go why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and give us the um and give us the link to your business as well because i i think people really should go go to your your business website and look at your work yeah my my yeah. website for my photography is mattbrass.com it's just m-a-t-t -T, and then it's brass like the metal b-r-a-s-s.com and then my um my business website uh, for my illustration is smokyoutfitters.com. But the trick is, is that it's like Smoky Mountains and there's no E. It's S-M-O-K-Y outfitters.com. Do you do that a lot in Tennessee? Doesn't Tennessee whiskey not have an E in it? Um, I don't <laughs> or, or know. Or does it have an E? I don't <laughs> it's know. something like that. Whoever named the park didn't put an E in it. And so... Around here, if it's smoky, you usually doesn't have an E. Yeah. Uh, anything else? You're on Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, uh, I'm me, Matt Brass on Instagram. I'm Matt Brass on Vero. I'm trying to get that platform get into that a little bit. Um, I'm also trying to do the the, the Visco VSCO thing, and I'm Matt Brass on that as well. And you said on Instagram, you're Matt Brass or the, the Matt, Matt Brass? The Matt Brass because. Okay. There's already yeah. with a Matt Brass somewhere. Yeah. That's the problem when you have a common name. Yeah. I've got one of those too. Yeah, you're worse off than me, as I would think. <laughs> Patterson. Yeah, pretty more common. Pretty than... common, especially in, in the state of Virginia. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, thank you. It was it was a very interesting discussion. Uh I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate the articles you do and your support to our magazine well i enjoy it i enjoy it <laughs>